you would turn in your copies of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Does that feedback me? Sorted in a second. There we go. Thank you. I remember being in uh, one of my previous churches and helping out with the soundboard. And one of the things that our directors told us was anytime there was a sound problem, the first thing that you would do would be to duck. Because everyone was going to turn and look back at you to try to figure out what was going on with the sound. Things are complicated. All right. Ephesians chapter 1. To set our context this morning, we're looking at the spiritual blessings, the great spiritual blessings that the Lord God has given to us uh, believers. We've seen how these are being uh, sorted and structured in the members of the Trinity. We saw in our first study in this that we looked at what the Father was doing for us and uh, choosing and predestining us. And now we're going to see how that predestination works itself out. What's the means by which we can be forgiven, by which we can be redeemed? And that's what we're going to see here in chapter 1. And we're going to be reading verses 7 through 10 this morning. This is what Jesus does for us. So listen carefully, because this is God's word that's for you. In him, that is Christ, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's take a moment and let's ask the Lord God to give his blessing on our text today. Oh, Jesus, we thank you so much for this opportunity to read and to study your word. Lord, we thank you that you have preserved it for us and brought it to us here today for our encouragement and edification. Lord, we ask that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to hear what you have to say to us today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in college, I had the opportunity over the course of the summer term to take a class on mystery novel writing. How is it that one composes a mystery novel and the categories that those go in? I looked at that as a chance to get a break from Shakespeare, Milton, and Joyce and to read some Nancy Drew and a couple of other classics. And what we had found in reading these books is that the author was always working so that the mark of a good mystery was that when you got to the last page, that you'd be able to look back through the rest of the story and almost slap your forehead as you realize, I should have seen this coming the whole way. The clues were all right in front of me. I just couldn't see where the author was going with it until the very last page. And I think in some ways... That's what we're seeing here in our scripture and even in our world. When we look around at the world, it doesn't seem like we have any idea where this plot is going. Seems like every other day we hear some new earth-shaking news about where this is going. 
And the things that we thought we could take comfort in, well, that's not a thing that we can trust at all. And we often wonder, where is this world going? Usually we will cynically reply, and the the phrase would go, that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And certainly it seems like that's true, if you keep your projections to a certain point. But we're not looking far enough down the path. And that's what I think we need to see here in this passage. That's why I have titled this sermon as Going to Heaven in a Handbasket. Not to say that all of the world is going to heaven. It's not to say that I'm not teaching a universalism. But what I am saying is that for those of us that are in Christ, there is a very bright future. The last page of this mystery novel of our lives that we're all reading has an amazing ending. And is really something that we should have seen coming all along. And that's what we're going to look at in our passage today. So... We're going to see two points, as is our habit in this passage today. The first is that Jesus is the redemption for our sins. That's where this is going. And secondly, that Jesus is the revelation of God's mystery. We're going to uncover what that mystery is. So let's dive into this next passage here in verse 7, starting with the phrase, In him we have redemption through his blood. So here, this is, again, we're speaking of Jesus. This is Jesus' role in our salvation, to provide for us redemption. Now, we throw that word redemption around quite often, so what is it? Well, there's really, in my study of this, there are two senses to this word. The first one, and is the most dominant one, is this idea of ransom. If we remember uh, just a year ago, I had to check to see that it was just a year ago, so much has happened. You remember when we had some online hackers shut off our gas pipeline through a certain section of our country? And they held a ransom on those computers and weren't going to unlock them unless they had been paid, I think it was $4 million worth of Bitcoin, which the person, the owner of the gas company did, and he redeemed his computers bought them back, paid the ransom price, and they were returned to his control. In the same way, we have been taken captive. Now, it's not saying that Jesus is paying a debt to Satan. That's not the case. No, Jesus is paying a debt to the wrath of God. We are sinners. We deserve judgment. We are enslaved to our sins. And the wrath that is, we are justly deserving of. And Jesus redeemed us. But this wasn't something that could be done through money. This had to be done, as one of my old seminary professors used to say, death is the currency in which it must be paid. Our sins require death. And Jesus paid that cost for us. That's the main sense, I think, that Paul has in mind for this word redeemed. But there is another sense in that in which it means rescue. This has some overtones of when the Israelites were captured in Egypt and were slaves there. And the Lord redeemed his people out of slavery, rescued them from this country, and set them free in their own land. This wasn't a debt he had to pay to Pharaoh, but was a rescue that he had for his people. And I think both senses of that are here and operating in this word redeemed. 
that we that our payment has that our debt has been paid our ransom notice has been paid and we have been rescued and removed from this sin but this cost quite a lot this redemption had to be done through his blood and it had to be blood this is what we see in all through the old testament is that the animal sacrifices had to bleed their blood had to be poured out their life had to be poured out to pay the penalty for this sin. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Now Jesus, being God, the Son of God, he had to take on a body in order to do that. God is spirit. doesn't have a body. God can't bleed. So the Son came on and took human nature, which can. Took on a body to live as one of us and to die as one of us. That's what he's done. And what's the result? Well, as we see here in this next phrase, that we have redemption through his blood, which is the forgiveness of our trespasses. Forgiveness is something that we rightly talk about a lot here in the church. It's something that we, I think, though, have grown too familiar with. We don't think about this enough. What does the word forgiveness mean? It means it's a canceling of a debt. If you have a a debt or a loan or something like that, and that's been forgiven you, you don't make payments on that anymore. You're not in debt to that anymore. And it's the same thing here. We are all in debt to God. We've all sinned against Him. But now, because everything has been paid, our debt can be forgiven. It can be canceled. Never been brought up again. And freed to live in heaven for all of eternity. And it's the forgiveness of our trespasses. He uses that word trespasses. This means we're sinning and we know it. We know that what we're doing is wrong. But we have been forgiven. This is something that has a lo- that should at least have a large effect outside of our conception of what the church is. The idea that we have been forgiven of our sins should change how we view the entire rest of our life. I mean, life is full of problems. The older I get, the more of them I see. But this was by far our biggest one. We were in debt to God. And this, our entire eternity was banking on what Jesus was going to do. If our sins weren't forgiven, then we were heading for an eternity in hell, which we rightly deserved. And we've been set free from that. Our biggest problem has been taken care of. Now, how should that inform how we look at the rest of life's issues? I'm not saying that it makes those problems go away or that it makes hurts go away. Suffering still hurts. It's not a sin to be sad when hard things happen. But it does put everything else in context, doesn't it? It helps us to have a little bit of a wider view of the rest of our lives. It makes the suffering that we are experiencing here not ultimate, not defining of the rest of our existence. It does the same thing with our blessings, too. When we have the things that we're grateful for in our lives... 
all of them pale in comparison to this gift that we have been given in Christ. And that's an important thing for us to come to grips with because most of the things that we look at as blessings on this earth are temporary. The things that we look to as going to be providing a stable foundation for the rest of our lives can fade on us. We recently done a bathroom remodel only to discover there was a small leak and mold began to spread throughout the house. We've been dealing with that. Something we didn't see coming. The Lord has provided and it's taken care of, but all of those things that we think are safe, secure, and done, it can change in a moment. But this blessing won't. The blessing that Christ has forgiven us of our sins is not something that can be taken away. Something we'll have forever. I can think to my own family's history of how this was emphasized. My grandfather lost two of his sons within two weeks of each other. One to an undiagnosed heart defect and the other to a car accident. And he spoke at both of their funerals. And at the second funeral, 25 people came to know Jesus. One of them was an 83-year-old Jewish man. And he came up to my grandfather and said, when the first boy died and you didn't get better at God, I was impressed. But when the second boy died and you still didn't shake your fist at God, I realized Jesus has to be the Messiah. The one that you worship has to be the true God. And came to faith in Christ. My grandfather loved his children very, very much. And it was his recognition that his sins were forgiven in Jesus. And looked to that as his ultimate blessing is what kept him going. And what kept him serving Christ. He is one of the greatest evangelists that I personally knew. Because that was his motivation. He wasn't following Jesus because Jesus gave him sons and was only going to follow him as long as he had sons. He followed him because he knew his sins would be forgiven. And no matter what else happened in his life, and a lot of things happened to my grandfather, no matter what happened in his life, this was the thing that he looked to. That's what we can look to. That's what we should look to. If something happens in our lives and we get bitter at God because we've lost something, perhaps because we've gotten our eyes off target, we're missing what we should be keeping our eyes fixed to, is this blessing. Because this is something that God has given to us and not haphazardly. In fact, we look here into verse 8. This is something that he has lavished upon us. God's gone over and above for us. But he's done so in all wisdom and insight. Without getting into the debate about and all the details about whether wisdom and insight is supposed to go with verse 9 or whether it points back to verse 7. I think it's verse 7. If you want to know why, I can explain at the door. But I think what this is talking about is that this is grace that God has given to you. This forgiveness that he has given to you is not something that was done randomly or haphazardly. God didn't toss some grace out into the air and you happen to get hit by it. This is something that he has specifically chosen to give to you. This is a gift with your name on it. This is yours to have and to hold for all the rest of your life. 
This is a beautiful thing that we have. And something we should remind ourselves of every day. When the trials and blessings come our way. Saying, yes, this trial is difficult. But I've been relieved of my greatest one. Or this blessing is wonderful. But it's nothing in comparison to what I have in Christ. So keep us grounded in where we're supposed to be. And then we get to the second part of this passage, verses 9 and 10. As we move into our second point, that Jesus is the revelation of God's mystery. This is a wonderful portion. I've been excited to preach this part. This is the Lord is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So here's the first time we're going to see this word mystery pop up a number of other times in the rest of this book. But here's the first time that we've seen it. And Paul hints to this mystery, but he doesn't say it right away. This is the mystery of God's will according to his purpose. So he's letting us know this mystery that is coming up is not something that God has come up with recently. This isn't plan B. This is something that has been God's purpose and point the entire time. And that focus is going to be in Jesus. We've probably had some guess that it's going to be something like that. If we remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, which we just read in verse 15, it talks about the seed of the woman that's going to crush the head of the snake. The one who's going to put the world back together. We don't know who that is, where he's coming from. Adam and Eve probably thought it was Cain. When he was born, it's like, ah, the seed of the woman. I'm the woman. Here's the seed. Here's the the man. And it wasn't Cain. They thought maybe it was Abel. He was the one that was worshiping the Lord, was dedicated to following his God. And he was killed. And it goes on and on and on and on. All through scripture, people looking for, maybe this is the one. Maybe it's a king. Maybe it's a prophet. Maybe it's a priest all the way through. And then we get to the New Testament. We find out the answer is yes. And it's Jesus is his name. This is what's going to happen. And it's going to happen at a very particular time. In verse 10. That this is a plan for the fullness of time. This phrase means when all things are ready. When the time is fulfilled. We get to the exact right moment. And then here is this mystery. Here's the plan. Here's where the world is all going. To unite all things in him, that's Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. Another way that we can take the word unite is everything will be summed up in Jesus. This word summed up, Paul uses elsewhere in Romans 13, where he talks about all ten commandments are summed up in this one, to love your neighbor as yourself. And here Paul is saying all things that are in heaven and on earth, all are going to be summed up in Jesus. All this is going to be here. When my old seminary professor, Frank Thielman, he put it this way. He says, all creatures that have ever lived, whether in heaven or on earth, will take the place that God intended them to have with respect to Christ. What has happened in the past will make sense in light of the future that Christ will bring. That's what this means. This is the last page of the mystery novel. It was Jesus all along who's going to make everything correct. It is going to sum up everything 
in him. This is something that we need to remember. It can be very easy to be caught up in world events and just think that the world is going to be blasted apart. And it seems more like that every day. And it seems hard to imagine how the Lord is going to redeem all of this. But he is. And we have a whole Bible of him doing that over and over again for his people. When he makes this promise to Abraham that he's going to be the father of this powerful nation. Kings are going to come from him. And then just a few hundred years later, all of his children are slaves in Egypt. To the most powerful nation in the world. Who's going to come and deliver you? No one can even come close to Egypt. They couldn't see any way out of that. And yet the Lord, ten plagues, brought them out of Egypt. And then they get stuck at the Red Sea. And it's like, all this is for naught. We can't get across this sea. And he opens the thing up, brings them into the land, brings them kings. And then they rebel. And they're kicked out of the land and they're exiled. So what are we going to do with this people? They've rebelled. They're scattered all over the earth. And the Lord brings them back. All through redemptive history, things have been unwinding and rewinding and all finding themselves back in Christ. And guys, we're still in Bible times. I remember I had a, had a kid's book of Bible questions and answers. And one of the questions was, was, when did Bible times stop? And the answer to the question was, they haven't. And they're still going. And we're still living in them. Jesus is still operating just as he was then, still superintending all events to go exactly as they are. And that's what this is supposed to be. This is a blessing for us to remember. All the world is going to be united in him. But until that day comes, how are we supposed to enjoy this this blessing? What if Jesus doesn't sum up all things for another 200 years? We're not going to be here to see that. Well, we will in heaven, but how do we enjoy this blessing now? Well, for one, I think by keeping in mind that all things are going to be summed up in Christ helps remind us that all things are not going to be summed up in us. Reminds us as to who this world is really about. And I need that reminder. When I think that, like, well, the Lord has called me to do this, that, or the other thing, and my first thought usually goes to my comfort. How is this going to impact me? The world is not going to be summed up in Mark Jessup. Thank the Lord. It's going to be summed up in Christ. It keeps us reminding of what our agenda is supposed to be, where this world is really going. That's not for us. I think this will also help as we will evaluate the things that happens in our lives. We take just a wider view of where this world is ultimately going. I was listening to a podcast yesterday talking about how our brains work in focus. When we focus on one thing and literally bring them closer to our eyes, we start losing the details that are out on the side. We can miss things that are important. The guy who was explaining this was a former Navy SEAL. And would explain when he was in the heat of battle, the things that he would do is actually take his sight off of his gun for a moment, take a step back and look at the wider field of what was happening. And that gave him a sense of what he needed to do and how to lead his troops forward. 
Too often when we experience problems in our own life, whether it's bills or aging parents or wayward children, we can zoom in on that problem and look at that thing and try to see how we can solve that. Instead of taking this step back and saying, where is this going? Who is in charge here? Where is this world going to be summed up ultimately? Again, this doesn't say that the problems magically go away. But this gives us a sense of where to start. You say, it's like, all right, Jesus is in charge of this thing. This is not up to me to force this world into Jesus' summing up. He's going to do it. So now how can I be a part of it? How can I be dependent on Jesus as I go through this? I think this also gives a greater context to both our failures and our successes. When we fail... Yes, these things are difficult, but you've not derailed God's plans for the world. The gospel is still for you. And even in our successes, we can temper those things and say, yes, I've built this business. Yes, I've managed to create this legacy for my children. Well, Christ is still coming. All of those things are going to be summed up in him and keeps us as the focus is to where it should be. So what's our takeaway from all of this? Well, you, dear fellow sinner, have been bought with the price of divine blood to be freed from your sins and set on a path to be summed up in history's ultimate king, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our takeaway from this passage. And if you have not surrendered your life to him, Today is the day of salvation. I call you. If you're not in Christ, then there will be judgment to come. You don't have this hope of redemption yet. But you can. And you can live with this hope that no matter what happens in this world, no matter what happens in politics here at home or abroad, that the Lord will work all things to his glory. All things will be summed up in him. And if we keep those promises in our hearts and our minds, the alarms of this world will grow just a little bit quieter. Our thoughts just a little bit clearer when we are reminded of the truth so that all things one day will be summed up in him and we redeemed sinners will be a part of all of that. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you. For this time of remembering the promises that you have given to us. Lord, I thank you for the gospel of the only hope for our salvation. And it's not about earning this gift, but about receiving. So I pray if there's any here that have not put their faith in Christ, not turned from their sins and put their full trust in you. I pray that they would do so even now and that they would get to begin to enjoy those blessings of being redeemed from their sin and to be a part of a world that will be reunited to its creator. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.